Okay, if you open up to Colossians chapter 4, we'll pick it up where we left off last week. And I just want to say I want to thank everybody that brought food. When I got home last Sunday, the, the porch was just, there was enough food to get me and the missus through the tribulation period. So um, I spent the rest of the day trying to move stuff around and the we got like a freezer in the garage and try to fit stuff in there and in the pantry and in the refrigerator. So, uh, so we're good. We're good on food. So there's, I'm sure there's other people in the church that need it more than us. In fact, if you need food, come talk to me and Mrs. And uh, we can. Uh, right now, we're in a in a position of uh, abundance. So, uh, but I just really, it's nice. It's nice. It's just so nice to be loved and. Uh, and so I really appreciate it. We really want to thank you for that. And um, uh, yesterday I got to speak at an uh, apologetics conference in, the, uh, in Olympia. Uh, it was Friday night and Saturday during the day. And, and Kathy insisted on going, so she kind of overdid it a little. And uh, so I suggested that she not come to church today. And she agreed with me, which is... This really means she really, really needs rest because uh, usually she'll fight me on that. And uh, so just keep her in your prayers. But she is healing up on pace. So, but there's still pain and she's still really weary. But just keep her in your prayers on that. I appreciate it. So you opened up to Colossians 4. And let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we, we love you, Lord. And uh, we know that our culture more and more, especially the leadership in our culture, is turning on you, and turning on your word, and turning on your people. Uh, but we thank you, Lord, that there is a remnant. And we feel so honored and so blessed and so grateful to be part of that remnant. So I know, Lord, that today when I'm, when I'm preaching, I don't know everyone's hearts, I don't know if we have some, some visitors and this and that. We don't know where they're coming from. But I know that for the most part, Lord, the people that are here are part of the remnant. And they're here to hear your truth proclaimed. They don't want the wisdom of man. They want your truth, your wisdom. And so I pray, Lord, that you would anoint me. You'd cancel the man, this, this fallible man so that I may proclaim your infallible and inerrant and perfect word. I uh, pray that I would not lead anyone astray by misinterpreting your word. And I pray that you'd open hearts and minds to receive truth from your word, but to also uh, give us the, the eyes and the courage uh, to refute everything that doesn't uh, hold true to your word. And so I just, I just pray, Lord, that you be with us in the preaching of the word. Empower us to apply these truths to our lives. And, um, but just be with us, Lord. We love you. We pray that uh, you would empower us to love you more. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. And so now Paul in Colossians 4, he's wrapping up the book here. And in the first few verses of chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, he tells us to continue earnestly in prayer and thanksgiving. And uh, uh, prayer should always be 
fervent, passionate, but it should always be with thanksgiving. I don't care how bad the situation you're going through. And granted, many of you have experienced trials way beyond anything I've ever experienced. But I know God's word. And God's word says that when we pray, yes, make our petitions and our requests known to the Lord. But God says, pray with thanksgiving. And, you know, I, I could look at the American church and I say, hey, that makes sense, Lord. You know, sometimes God's word doesn't make sense to me because he's infinite in wisdom. I'm finite. I don't have the whole picture. And I just say, hey, that doesn't make sense to me, Lord, but I'm going to trust you. I trust you more than I trust myself. And, um, but in America, I mean, we got so much to be grateful for. Yet the fact of the matter is, God's word also speaks to those in Ethiopia and those in the underground church in China and the, the church in uh, Iran. And so uh, even the persecuted church, even a church that is starving, their prayer should be saturated with thanksgiving. Uh, you read Romans 1, where mankind went wrong was we lacked Thanksgiving, we were not grateful. And so we turned uh, on God and suppressed the truth about God and professed to be wise and became fools. But whatever the case, uh, keep that in mind as you pray throughout the week. Pray with thanksgiving. No matter how bad things get, they could be worse. Okay? Let's say you're the, you suffer more than any other person on the planet Earth but you're trusting in Jesus for salvation, what do you have to be thankful for? Salvation. Things could be worse. You could still be hellbound. And um, so let's not be that spoiled child that uh, doesn't appreciate the gifts from God. Then we look very briefly at verses 5 and 6 of uh, Colossians chapter 4. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, those who are outside the church. Walk in wisdom towards non-believers, okay? Redeeming the time. Make the most of the time. And I remember when I was preaching on that last week, I had realized that I really didn't take full advantage of two opportunities where I was talking to people about the Lord. And I had an open door and, you know... It's very hard to get people from hello and God bless you to sharing the gospel message. But if the person is open and the spirit is leading, go for it. Um, if you can't get the gospel message in, say, hey, you know, hand him a business card to the church, invite him to church, invite him to a Bible study, something along those lines. And so I need to concentrate more on redeeming the time. Um, I think most of us are old enough to have heard the expression, I gave at the office. You know, the Girl Scouts trying to sell cookies. Ah, I gave at the I bought four boxes there or whatever. And we'd say it even if we didn't, you know. Well, with pastors, it's real easy to think I gave at the office. I preached to my people. I studied the word. I discipled people. I'm in church ministry all the time. So when I'm at Fred Meyer's, okay, I'm just there to conquer. I'm just there to buy food 
and get out as quickly as possible, okay? I don't want to talk to other human beings. In fact, human beings often get on my nerves. And uh, that's not redeeming the time. That's not making the most of the time. And um, people, people matter to our God. And that means they should matter to us. And, um, but Paul says here, walk in wisdom. Uh, let me tell you, uh, you know, we got an education system that is now dumbing down Americans, okay? God doesn't want a dumbed-down church. God wants us to have his knowledge. Ephesians talks about that. Wants us to have his wisdom, Okay, um, the problem with the Colossians was not that they were in love with wisdom. The problem was they were in love with false wisdom. But we should be in love with true wisdom. Not everybody's called to be a pastor. I'm glad for that, otherwise I'd be preaching to nobody today. Not everybody's called to be a pastor. Not everybody's called to be an evangelist or a, you know, we're all called to share our faith, but Maybe not an evangelist like Billy Graham was and his son is. Um, uh, not all of us are called to be professors or apologists, defenders of the faith, whatever it may be. But God calls all of us to have wisdom. And we get that wisdom from studying God's word. Okay? We study God's word. Now, in order to be able to refute those who contradict, Titus 1.9 we have to also look at what the world is saying as well. But God, you know, I, I've actually had Christian brothers and sisters who thought that if you have wisdom, even God's wisdom, if you have wisdom, that that's sinful and carnal and you worship education or whatever. And, and no, look, uh, God wants us to be wise. God didn't write us a tract. He didn't give us just a business card with John 3.16 on it, okay? He gave us 66 books. It's been 2,000 years since the Bible has been completed, and anybody who tells you he's got it all figured out or she's got it all figured out, that means they're a cult leader. We don't have it all figured out, okay? And uh, so we continue to grow in wisdom. Walk in wisdom towards non-believers and make the most of the time. How many of us can say that, that we did that yesterday? Man, I really walked in wisdom toward non-believers and I made the most of the time, okay? And um, sometimes you just say, God bless you to somebody and you made the most of the time right there. But other times people are real receptive and... Um, you know, an important principle in speaking about the gospel message, people don't have to accept the messenger. You want them to accept the message. At the same time, they're much more likely to accept the messenger if they do the, the message if they do accept them uh, like the messenger. Okay? So um, we want them to accept the gospel message, to trust in Jesus for salvation. They don't have to like you. There's a lot of people that love the Lord 
And they're not real thrilled about Phil Fernandez. They, you know, they choose to love me and they pray for me because the Bible commands them to, but they don't like being around me. That's okay. That's not the end of the world, okay? Um, having said that, if somebody does like me and I start talking to them, they're real interested in what I have to say, that's an open door. And it might be more likely that they'll accept the gospel message and come to Christ. Walk in wisdom. Uh, wisdom is more than knowledge. Knowledge is knowing what is true. Wisdom is knowing how to apply truth. Okay? But walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be with grace. So, you know, first 20 years of my life, living in New Jersey, um, learning how to be gruff and obnoxious and um, uh, in-your-face uh, type of thing, that's, that's not what God's in. God wants us, our speech, he wants our speech to be with grace, seasoned with salt. Okay? Um, you know, I mean, it's not like every time you talk with somebody, every time you talk with a stranger or somebody that you're building a relationship with, it's not like they, you know, they have to walk away from it saying, oh, what a pleasant fellow. Um, but that's, that's not bad. We ought to move in that direction. And um, how many people, when they talk with you, would, would say, man, what a gracious guy. What kind words, what encouraging words. Uh, at the conference that I spoke at yesterday, uh, it was amazing how many people came to me and encouraged me. I gave a very controversial talk. Uh, it was the first time they allowed me to give the talk at any conference. Uh, the next two conferences I speak at, they don't want me to give the talk. And, um, and just, and, and so, you know, not everybody's going to like that, that talk. And just the, just the fact that there were people there that encouraged me and thanked me for sharing it and you know, saying that they, they've been wishing that others would speak on those issues. Um, it was very, very encouraging. Those people, their speech was with grace and seasoned with salt. Uh, many of you have encouraged me in ways like that. Well, we've got to be that way with non-believers as well. Now, we never encourage, never encourage people to do evil or to be evil so you encourage people to get things right with the Lord. But you can be encouraging. You know, they were created by our God, so there's got to be something good you can say about people. Okay? But let them know you care. Okay? And um, I, I, don't, I don't damn anybody to hell. That's not my job. I'm not the infinite, infinite God. Now, if a person doesn't know Christ... They're on that road to hell. And, um, and I might need, in certain conversations, I might need to remind somebody of that. If they think they're heaven-bound, they don't know Jesus, i got to encourage them by encouraging them to get off the road to hell. But sometimes we make it look like and sound like we're the ones that are damning them to hell. We're the ones that want them in hell. And that's not the case. We want to see them find Jesus, okay? Um, 
I don't, I can't, I, keep in mind, I don't have to tell you, look, when you leave this church today, keep in mind, you might bump into somebody who deserves to go to hell. Okay? Listen, you're with people who deserve to go to hell right now. We're saved by grace. We still deserve the flames of hell. It's God's free gift that we're heaven bound. So, yes, we got to have God's wisdom when we speak with others and make the most of the time, but we do it with grace. You know, I, I, I still like that expression. Some, some pastors don't. That when you share your faith, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Amen. Okay? Never give people the impression that you've earned God's favor and they didn't. And I'm talking down on you. Okay? We got to have some humility there. Your, your, your speech is not going to be seasoned with salt. It's not going to be gracious if there's no humility. So we got to humbly share Jesus. The way Peter says to defend the faith, 1 Peter 3.15, with gentleness and respect. Okay? And so I pray for humility. And, um, and when I pray for humility, man, I'm telling you, you pray for humility. We all should pray for humility. But when you get humility, it, it can be, you know, it's like praying for patience. And you get trial after trial after trial because that's what builds your patience. Um, but I pray for humility, and sometimes God answers the prayer. And I, I, remember, uh, I remember Brad Bogle. His dad's memorial service. I was over there at the uh, uh, right by the school on Chico Way at the golf course, there for his memorial service, and um, and a mom walked up to me, the mother of a little girl dressed as you like kindergarten girl dressed up like a princess with the crown and the dress and everything, and she said, uh, "Excuse me, do you teach at uh, Cross Point?" And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, well, my little daughter recognizes you. And I don't teach little kids. They just see me walking around and all. And, um, and she said, my little daughter uh, um, recognized you. I said, oh, that's nice. And, um, and th then I went to shake her hand and, and uh, said, hi, I'm, I'm Doc. And when she heard Doc, that's what they call me there, she went like that. And then she backed up into, into her mom. And so immediately pride set in, and it's like, man, even these little kindergarten kids, they know who Doc is. I don't get him till I don't get him till ninth grade, but I'm a big shot. She knows who Doc is. So I turned to the mother, I said, I said, Oh, you know, she's the little girl's terrified. Once I said I was Doc and she backed up towards her mom and uh, and uh, you know, I told the mom, I said, I guess I guess she knows who Doc is and and the mom said no, you know, actually, she's a Snow White fan. She thinks you're one of the seven dwarfs. And uh, so, you know, so sometimes, you know, you're, you're walking around like this. And, you know, yeah, I'm the man, you know, like some professional wrestler before he gets whooped in the ring. And you're walking around like that. And then within minutes, the Lord's got you reduced to that. We just want to find a corner to hide in and stuff. But, but. You got to be a humble servant of the Lord. You know why you got to be a humble servant of the Lord? 
Because there's no other kind of servant of the Lord. He's God, you're not. Jesus won heaven for us. We don't deserve it. It's a free gift. And so if we're humble servants, uh, not only are we going to walk in wisdom towards those outside the church, make the most of the time, but our speech will be gracious, seasoned with salt. And then Paul says this, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now let me say this. So this is basically, you've got to be able to answer people's questions about Christianity and answer their objections against Christianity. Okay? One side of this coin is that Paul is not saying everybody has to be a Christian apologist with a PhD degree. Okay? It doesn't mean you've got to go to Bible college and seminary. Okay? It doesn't mean you have to read the top 100 apologetic books written in the, the last 10 years, as well as the top 100 books written throughout the history of the church. Okay? It doesn't mean everybody has to be a world-class C.S. Lewis or Francis Schaeffer or Norman Geisler apologist, okay? That's one side of the coin. In other words, someone's defense of the faith might be, you know, all I can do is share my testimony with you. That's what I call testimonial apologetics, okay? How you were a rotten guy or gal, you trusted Jesus for salvation, and Jesus began to change your life. You share that testimony. Now, let me say this, brothers and sisters. If you're still a rotten person, don't use your testimony when you're... If, you're gonna, if you say how rotten you were, and then you came to Christ, and look at me now, and the guy's like, I don't see the difference. They're not going to get the point there, okay? But if God has changed your life, believe me, I know a lot of the people in this church, and from talking to you and others, I know who you were before you came to Christ. And um, some of you have powerful testimonies, okay? And, um, uh, but, you know, maybe you don't know a lot about philosophy and evidence for God. Maybe you don't know a lot about scientific evidence for God. Maybe you don't know a lot of historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection and his deity, okay? But you could always defend the faith by, by sharing your testimony, Okay? Now, that's one side of the coin. You don't have to be a world-class uh, apologist, okay? You don't have to be an intellectual or an academic scholar. The other side of the coin, you have to recognize we do live in the information age. We have a higher percentage of people today have access to the writings of Plato and Aristotle and the writings of the world's leading scientists today and the world's leading atheists today, a, a higher percentage of people have access to that kind of information than they had in Paul's day. And if that information is out there um, and somebody asks you, well, uh, how could God exist when, uh, when there's all this... Uh, evil and human suffering in the world. And you're like, hmm, I never studied philosophy. Um, 
Well, guess what? If you care about that person, uh, don't, don't, don't bluff. Don't say, well, he's God. Whatever he does is right. And, um, you know, you bluff, you're just going to push people away. So be honest. If you don't know the answer, you don't know. But you could say one of two things. I don't know the answer, but I have a friend who knows. Let me introduce you, you know, to Pastor John or, or uh, Pastor Pat, okay? Um, or you could say, I don't know the answer. Let's research it together, okay? And so having this access to all this information, um, I think does give us a little bit more responsibility there. And, um, and so we should be able. Now, by the way, with the problem of evil, God gave us free will. God didn't create evil. He created the possibility of evil, which is human and angelic free will. And we abused that freedom by actualizing evil. Evil is not something that was created. It's a perversion, a corruption, or a destruction of God's good creation. Like human nature is corrupted. We corrupted the perfect human nature that God gave us. Okay? And so free will comes into play. But then when God allows our evil choices and the evil, the bad consequences of those choices to come about, he's all-powerful. He could have stopped it. So that means that God allows it for purposes of a greater good. Now, what the greater good is in God allowing the Holocaust, I can't tell you. But guess what? I don't have to be able to tell you because I'm not claiming to be God. God's infinite in wisdom. Paul wants us to have wisdom. Nowhere does he tell us you've got to have infinite wisdom. Because only three persons have that, and they happen to be the one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 comes into play, where Isaiah says that God's ways and his thoughts are as far above ours as the heavens are above the earth. And, um, but this is what's called apologetics, uh, the defense of the Christian faith. But there's many different ways you could defend the faith. My, my book, The Fernandez Guide to Apologetic Methodologies, I talk about at least 17 different ways to defend the faith. Somebody might use testimonial apologetics. Somebody else might use uh, philosophical or classical apologetics or historical or scientific. Um, but basically, we need to give people answers for our faith. Again, don't lie. Don't bluff. If you have, if you have to, take them to meet another one of your friends, and the three of you can have a discussion if your friend knows more about those issues than you. Um, but basically, God commands us to have enough wisdom to know how we ought to answer each one. Okay? I'm telling you, if an elderly lady is 95 years old and she's never studied apologetics, she's just gone to church and she's read her Bible, and uh, the world's one of the world's leading atheists, Say, well, what good reason do you have for being a Christian? If her answer is, I've always grown up in a church, studying the Bible, I believe the Bible, I walk with Jesus, and I've walked 95 years on this planet, and Jesus never let me down. 
don't know, the world's wisest atheist can't refute that. Okay? But let, let, let's care enough to get, you know, I get slammed for being apologists. Oh, you're a know-it-all, and this and that, and they slam you in, act like you worship knowledge and all this other stuff, and, um, and it's that friendly fire that really hurts. You take a stay, you get on the football field, get off the bench, um, you will get criticized. It's like nobody, nobody fumbles from the bench. That's why the best critics are on the bench. And, uh, but you get out there, you will be, will be criticized and all. And so, you know, people are like, oh, this and that. It's like, no, no. It's just about, I love people uh, not just enough to share the gospel. I love them enough to go the extra yard and defend the gospel and give them reasons for faith. Okay? We all need to do that. We're all going to be called to different degrees of defending the faith. But I think even that elderly lady's response that he 95 years and Jesus never let her down. Why would you give up on Jesus then? You know? I mean, what's Richard Dawkins going to say if he lives to be 95? 95 years, I trusted evolution and evolution never let me down? Uh, dude, you think when you die you're going to cease to exist? If there's life after death, evolution isn't going to help you. Um, so, but we've got to love people enough to try to answer their uh, objections. Now we get to the parts of the Bible that we usually don't like to read. Uh, kind of like genealogies. When Paul starts giving final greetings and endorsements, um, it's just like, oh man, why even read this stuff? Let me tell you, I'll tell you, man, as a preacher of the word, uh, I can't wait to meet Tychicus when I get to heaven. Yeah, we're all going to get to meet Jesus. We, we got an eternity, so we're going to have time to actually meet with the Apostle Paul, but the line's going to be so long that uh, I'm, not, I'm not counting on spending like, you know, 10 years with him. Um, uh, but maybe with Tychicus, maybe I might be able to spend, you know, 30 minutes talking with this guy. But, but Paul gives the final greetings and endorsements. And uh, here, look at verses 7 and 8. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. So this Tychicus is a faithful brother and colleague of Paul. He'll give the Colossians an update on Paul's condition. Now, if you look back at Ephesians 6, you know, something, you get a chance, look at the Take a book like this where Paul mentions a lot of names and then look them up in a Strong's Concordance and find out everything else that's said about these, these guys. Some guys are only mentioned once and that's all you get, but some of them you get little, little bits of info here, little bits of info there. And, uh, but Tychicus is mentioned in, in uh, Ephesians 6, 21 and 22. Um, and so nobody remembers that because you just got done reading the full armor of God. It's like, wow, that's really cool. And then it's just like, oh, man, and you're falling asleep when you get, by the time you get to, uh, to Tychicus. But in Ephesians 6, um, it says, but Paul tells the Ephesians, but that you also may know, Paul's in the same Roman prison uh, as he was 
when he wrote Colossians, wrote them around the same time, Ephesians and Colossians, but that you also may know my, my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Sounds to me like Tychicus, you know, he's, Paul's got a lot of colleagues, but it's just like, hey, I sent him there for him to let you know how I'm doing. Okay? Quite a few people today before church asked me how my wife is doing. You know, she had the pacemaker surgery. In fact, she had two surgeries. First one didn't go too well. And um, all within a week. And, um, but I think... I think you probably sense that you would probably get more information and sometimes more accurate information from me, her spouse, than you would from her. That she might downplay her suffering a little bit and this and that. And, um, and just getting that extra opinion. I think, you know, Paul's over there. Look, I'm a prisoner in chains, you know, being persecuted for preaching the gospel and that. Um, I could see Tychicus showing up and telling how Paul's doing. They take him aside. No, no, really. How's Paul doing? I could see Tychicus saying something. You know, I'm using my imagination here, but he's not, he's not as young as he used to be, you know. He's been through quite a few beatings. The food isn't that great over there. It's kind of damp in that prison cell. But he's doing good. Because our God is good. And you keep supporting his ministry. Because he's going to preach till they kill him. Tychicus is a good kind of friend to have. If you can, I mean, I mean, you know, somebody said this about you, your beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. I'm trusting him to get to tell you about me. And um, somebody says that about you. That's pretty good. But when the guy who said it about you happens to be the Apostle Paul, It's like, take it because I want to meet you someday. When I go to heaven, yeah, I want to bow before Jesus. But I want to talk to some of these great saints. And we would have never heard of him if Paul didn't appreciate his co-laborers in Christ. You see, even Paul needed a team. Okay? Now, when Paul shows up in Athens at Mars Hill with all these Greek philosophers and all the pagan idols there, he's got nobody with him. And so what did he do? He preached. So you still do what God called you to do, even if nobody else is around. At the same time, Paul couldn't wait for like Timothy and Silas or whoever to show up. Okay? If the Apostle Paul needed a team, what makes me, what makes you think that we can be Lone Rangers, okay? Um, and so, you know, it's even like when Jesus sent the, the apostles out and then the disciples out, 
he sent them out two by two. Okay? And every once in a while, you might, you might, you know, you might be sharing a prison cell with only one person, and you might have to minister all alone um, for, you know, getting locked up for preaching the gospel. But except for a few different scenarios, God's called us to community, and, um, and uh, we'd be better off having a brother or sister by our side so that when we fall, they pick us up. When they fall, we pick them up. But even Paul needed a team. Okay? Paul, Paul was actually, um, it's a weird illustration, but it actually reminds me of a lot of mafia leaders. That when they were in prison, they'd get one visitor and they'd whisper a few things to him and then he'd leave the prison. And so you had mafia leaders in prison still running all the action, okay? Paul, you could put him in prison. He is still overseeing all these churches he planted, even some churches he didn't plant, like Coloss. Sounds like Epaphras did that, one of Paul's colleagues. And Paul is still recognizing that they need leadership, and I can provide that leadership for them. And he trusts his Tychicus uh, to do that. His beloved brother and faithful minister, okay? This is not, uh, you know, Joe Sloppy saying, yeah, the guy's a faithful brother and a faithful minister. Now, this is Paul saying that. Now, he sends him with this other guy. We talked about him already last week. Verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, the guys from Coloss. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. So, so Paul's saying, look, I don't have time to write all the stuff that's going on here. So these guys can spend hours talking with you about it. But I got Tychicus, and I'm sending not only with him, I'm sending this other guy, this other radical Jesus freak named Onesimus. Now there's a whole lot going on here. Onesimus, his name means useless. Okay? And... Um, a whole letter was written about Onesimus, and it was written to Onesimus's uh, master, Philemon. So Philemon had a slave. He called him useless, Onesimus. And so Paul said, hey, he was useless for you, but he's useful for me. How many of us were useless before we came to Christ? And then all of us, okay, put your hand down now, Pat. Um, and then, uh, but how many of us, we were useless before we came to Christ. And then we come to Christ. And God gives us salvation and a ministry. So many psychologists will tell you, Bill Bickle, you're a nut because uh, you think you're on a mission from God. God's word says Bill Bickle would be a nut if he doesn't think he's on a mission from God. You, you don't think you're on a mission from God? Why did God create you then? Okay. Um, what is John Piper? He, he writes about... He, I'm not even a Piper fan, to be honest with you, but 
he wrote about like five or six pages on this couple that invested wisely and retired, and now they live on, they have a beach home, and they spend their whole lives on the beach, and they collect seashells. It sounds so good. I mean, he, he got to the point where you think, man, that's the life. And, um, and then he just says something like, what a waste. You really think God just created you just to isolate yourself from the rest of the world, just to enjoy your spouse's company and look at seashells all day? And Piper's not against retiring, but, you know, retire from your secular work, so now you can do full-time ministry. But you live to serve Jesus, and then you live to serve others. You don't live to serve, uh, to serve yourself. We're all on a mission from God. And that's him, as Paul said, he was useless to you, but he's useful to me. He, he's from Colossus, so Philemon's there. They might have been delivering the letter to Philemon at this time. I don't know. And Paul tells Philemon, look, dude, I led you to Christ. You owe me. Now, he's a runaway slave, and he ended up in Rome, and I led him to Christ. And he's a warrior for the Lord. He might have been lazy before because he didn't like this slave thing. Who are you to tell me what to do? You know, it's just like, hey, we're going to name you useless. And uh, he probably uh, he probably was a slave with the mentality of a free man. God didn't create me to be enslaved by other men. And, uh, and so uh, Paul sends him back, has to send him back to Colossus to Philemon, Roman law. But Paul says, look, I led you to Christ. I would like to see, I'll pay any debt he owes you, but I'd like to see you set him free and send him back to me. And, um, and how we know, we read church history, that one of the early bishops, uh, his name was Onesimus. And most scholars believe it's the same guy. Useless. Bishop useless. And Paul said he's useful. So he's useful. And, um, and so it's probably this Onesimus that later became a bishop um, in the early church. And, you know, some of us need, need that. We feel useless. We feel like nobody loves us. We feel like I don't even have a place in the world. And then you come to Christ. And Onesimus becomes useful and God is good and um, and so it's like I mean if Onesimus is hanging around with uh, Tychicus um, he's doing pretty good he's uh, he's got a good work ethic now so I, I think with Onesimus I think his probably his probably attitude about life was he had a chip on his shoulders. He was probably one of those guys who was like, I'm a slave to no man, but I am joyfully a slave to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this guy uh, was a hard worker for the Lord. By the way, you didn't become a bishop in the early church um, unless you were discipled by and colleagues of uh, some of the original apostles or their colleagues. And so this probably was, I don't think there are too many people named Onesimus walking around back then. 
Now, in verses 10 and 11, Paul mentions three Jewish guys. It says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So, <laughs> so Paul's looking over uh, at another guy in chains, malnourished, damp cell, and the other guy says, hey, Paul, when you send that letter, send greetings, send my greetings. And uh, so these are like uh, prisoners who have no shame being in prison for preaching the gospel. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. That's John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. Then he says, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Wouldn't you like to know what those instructions were? And... Uh, and then he says, and Jesus, Jesus was a very common name, who is called Justice. Why do they call him Justice? They probably didn't want to call the guy Jesus. You know, they're just so focused on Jesus of Nazareth, the, the Messiah, God the Son, the Savior. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. So they're Jewish. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So they were Jewish. You're going to be a colleague of Paul, and you're a circumcised Jew, you're not going to demand that the Gentiles who come to Christ get circumcised. That's false teaching. That's a false gospel. Uh, and so these guys understood, we're Jewish, but the Gentiles don't need to get circumcised. Uh, but they worked alongside uh, Paul, even though he was the apostle uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, Aristarchus was Paul's fellow prisoner. He greets the Colossians. He was a Jewish Christian from Thessalonica, and he traveled with Paul since the Ephesian riot of Acts chapter 19. When you read the book of Acts, in chapter 19, there was this big riot, and Paul almost got torn to shreds and all. And then he was with Paul on Paul's third missionary journey. You see that in Acts 19, he's mentioned, verse 29, Acts 20, verse 4, Acts 27, verse 2. I mean, so this dude was out there. As soon as he met Paul, okay, he started being a colleague of Paul and working with him side by side, and he ends up in a prison cell right next to him. John Mark, he was Barnabas' cousin. He might have been the guy who, in the Gospel of John, they grabbed his cloak, a teenage guy, and he ran away naked. Only God, Mark's Gospel mentions that, and it might be because John Mark might have been that because his mom had a home in uh, Jerusalem and uh, that might have been where the Last Supper was, okay? And, um, and the early church often met there. And uh, so he may have been even younger than the Apostle John and just a teenager. Well, when he went with Paul and Barnabas, by the way, Barnabas uh, means son of encouragement. You know, think about how you treated people the last two weeks. Would anybody nickname you son of encouragement? And, um, but he was with Paul um, um, and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. That was right after the, uh, or right before the Jerusalem Council. So it was the late 40s AD. But he bailed out on them. He wimped out. He left. Now, I don't. the Bible doesn't say why he left, but you could see lots of reasons why you would want to leave. You could say, Paul, you know, we almost got beat up yesterday. We did get beat up 
the day before. People are shouting at us today, I'm a teenager, I'm out of here. I didn't think it was going to be this stuff. That could have been, you know, the possibility. He could have just been homesick, you know. I can remember the first time I went away to camp, away from my parents and family. And I felt, man, I really, really miss him. I wish I could go home. But since it was the United States Marine Corps boot camp, uh, I didn't have much of a choice. But, but some, sometimes it's homesickness, whatever. Uh, so after the Jerusalem Council, Paul and Barnabas decided to go visit the churches in their second missionary journey, visit the churches that they planted in the first missionary journey. And so you can read about this in the book of Acts. And um, um, Barnabas says, come on, let's give, he's a son of encouragement, let's give my nephew a second chance. And Paul was like, no. The dude wimped out on us. And they had a really heated argument. And so Paul took Silas and Barnabas took John Mark, and now God's doubling the work. You've got two missionary journeys to the Gentiles going on simultaneously. This is the, the Marine Corps issue of uh, leadership. There's a big debate. What is the most important thing that a leader needs to focus on? Is it the welfare of the troops or the accomplishment of the mission? Now, my own view was... It's the accomplishment of the mission. If you didn't become a, you know, why'd you become a Marine? To accomplish a mission? You know, if you became a Marine just to get college tuition, hey, there's more to it than that, okay? You're supposed to become a Marine to be trained to be a warrior and to win wars and defend our country. So the accomplishment of the mission is, I think, the most important. However, I did not believe you could do that without caring for the welfare of the troops. So more times than not, if you looked at me, you would think I put the troops first. I didn't. I put the mission first, but I understood if I don't take care of my troops, they're not going to accomplish the mission. But that's the debate that's going on. you got two great leaders in the early church, and Barnabas is saying... Man, it's about the welfare of the troops. He wimped out. John Mark wimped out on us the first time. God's the God of a second chance, Paul. Let's give him a second chance. And Paul's like, look, this is not on-the-job training, man. I'm, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. This is not a rehabilitation for John Mark. we got to accomplish the mission. And so they butt heads. I actually think Paul was wrong in this case. I think Barnabas knew John Mark's character better. And I think just the fact that John Mark wrote um, the Gospel of Mark and, at, and how highly Paul talked about John Mark in his future letters, even in his last letter before he's going to die, um, I think Paul kind of regretted it. And I think you can see evidence of Paul regretting it because once he goes on his missionary journey, the first thing he does is he finds a young guy named Timothy. And he takes him on his missionary team. I, th I wouldn't be surprised if Timothy reminded him of John Mark. And if Paul was saying, you know, maybe it was a little too rough on the guy. Even when we make dumb decisions, God promised to work all things for good. And now you got 
two missionary journeys going on. So now what was in that uh, instructions about, <laughs> about John Mark? Um, all I know is Paul says, look, if he comes to you, you welcome him. So maybe word was going around that he had wimped out on the first missionary journey and Paul wanted nothing to do with the guy. Who knows? Maybe that was still floating around, you know, uh, 10 years later. And Paul says, no, I'm giving you instructions that, hey, the dude's one of my, he's, he's one of my boys now. Okay? Um, he's, uh, he's straight out of Jerusalem. Okay? He's one of my guys. And, um, and so, um, and so that's, that's with uh, John Mark. Paul sent instructions to them to welcome him. And then Jesus, who was called Justice, and, uh, and uh, they comforted Paul in his sufferings. You know, uh, sometimes we want to do a powerful thing for the Lord, okay? And um, I remember when Norm Geisler was speaking, very rarely would he come to the West Coast because the five-hour flights were too tough on him, and he was in his 80s. And I would speak at the same conferences he spoke at, but sometimes I think, sometimes I think the, thing, the things that God appreciated the most that I did through the grace of God at those conferences was I realized as he was walking around real slow and humped over, hunched over, you know, every once in a while I'd grab his bag or grab some of his stuff and then carry it around. Yeah, you know, I'd joke around too. I, I stole his name tag and put it on me. And so everybody's looking at me thinking, Norm Geisler? But, um, but, um, but these guys recognize, look, you know, yeah, I'm a good preacher. I can go out there and preach. I can start my own ministry. But I got the Apostle Paul here. Let me help him and work with him and, um, and take care of him. You know, if it was today, you know, let me, let me go on a coffee run for him or get him some food. He hasn't eaten in, in 14 hours or whatever. And, uh, but these guys comforted Paul. So Paul, even Paul needed a team. And, uh, and these were the only three Jewish believers who accompanied Paul at that particular point, Aristarchus, John, Mark, and then Jesus, who was called uh, Justice. And then, uh, uh, and then we'll pick it up there next Sunday with Epaphras and Luke. I mean, man, Paul's hanging out with two gospel authors right there, the author of the Gospel of Luke, the author of the Gospel of Mark. If those books, by the way, were written as early as I think they were written, they were already written by this point. And um, he's hanging out with some big, um, big people. And uh, we've got a little, little bit of message we can learn from, from Demas. And then he mentions a guy, Nymphus. So we'll pick it up there next week and then the final exhortations and blessings. Um, but I, I just want to close with that. You just, Make the most of the opportunities with non-believers. Be wise, but be gracious with them. Speak the truth to them, but speak the truth in love. Okay? And as a police officer, I did not like when other police officers would chew people out for blowing a stop sign or speed. That's not, I tell them, I said, guys, that's not your job. You're not the judge and the jury. Even if a guy... I had to arrest guys who abused their kids. You think that was fun to cuff a guy and not be able to pop him? Um, 
Um, we had one officer, Steve Harris, six foot five guy, that uh, he couldn't deal those. Whenever I was with him on those, I'd have to arrest the guy and take the guy away because he wouldn't be able to restrain himself. He knew what he knew where his limits were, and um, we got to be gracious and kind. It's not our job to condemn people and throw them to hell. Last I heard, we're not on the throne. Okay, Jesus is. So be gracious to them. You're trying to share the salvation that even you don't deserve. And, um, and so deal with wisdom toward non-believers and love them enough to try to provide them with answers for faith, for why you believe. And then the second point uh, that I want to leave you with, look, if, if the Apostle Paul needed a team, Why are you trying to be a Lone Ranger? You know, and I, 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 by the grace of God, I built a staff here where other guys are strong where I'm weak. Okay? And um, um, 